Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Pat Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. And as always, dad is an energy, not a gender. Welcome to episode 96, or aka our Christmas episode. This is the closest to Christmas an episode will be released. So, welcome. We watched five Smackaroonies this week, and a lot of them are real, real good. So let's get into it. Kylie, kick us off with the first one. We went and saw the newest Studio Ghibli film, The Boy and the Heron. It's a 2023 animated adventure drama directed and written by Hayao Miyazaki and starring Soma Santoki as Mahito, Masaki Suda as the Grey Heron, Ko Shibasaki as Kiriko, and Yoshino Kimura as Natsuko. Synopsis. A young boy named Mahito, yearning for his mother, ventures into a world shared by the living and the dead. There, death comes to an end and life finds a new beginning. A semi-autobiographical fantasy from the mind of Hayao Miyazaki. What did you think of The Boy and the Heron? I think that that is a good disclaimer as well, is that clearly based on the cast list you just read, we saw the non-English dubbed version. Yeah, that was important to me. Wherever possible, it's important to me to see a film in its original language. Um, Of course... Without being able to speak the original language, there's always going to be something lost in translation, mm-hmm. um, even in subtitling. But I just like to hear the original performances. Um, but I also see the incredible value in ensuring that animated films um, that were originally recorded in non-English are dubbed in English so children can see them. Mm-hmm. Because my first Studio Ghibli film I ever saw was My Neighbor Totoro, and I was watching it when I was a toddler, if that hadn't been dubbed, I wouldn't have been able to watch it and I wouldn't have fallen in love with it. Mm-hmm. So I really value that 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 both exist. And mm-hmm. I'm glad that there were options and, and plenty of showings of both. Mm-hmm. Um, but we made a specific choice to see the subtitled one first. Heard fantastic things about the dubbed one. And I am interested in watching it because folks I know who have seen both have said it's really worth watching both. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I want to see this again anyway. Yeah, uh, I've heard similar things. And I'm so grateful that we had the option to see either or in our city. I'm, I love that so much. And watching the trailer, I'm also super curious about the performance of Robert Pattinson as the heron because it does not sound like <laughs> any sounds that would come from Robert Pattinson. <laughs> He's just a little freak and I love it. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, in terms of the movie itself, I was very excited for this. Um, I feel like, at least for myself, I haven't gone too deep into the Studio Ghibli pantheon of films. We've watched quite a few, but, but not nearly all. Yeah. I was talking with our good buddy Cosette just the other day because she loves Ghibli and she loves anime and she's really well versed in it. And yeah, I'm just I, I feel like there's just so much more good shit out there that I'm excited to dig into. But it's exciting to be able to go see a new Miyazaki film in the theater. And there's a lot of positive buzz about it. So that got me even more excited. This would be, I think, my first Miyazaki in the theater. Yeah, mine as well. So that's exciting too. It was amazing. It surpassed all, and if any expectations I had for it, it surpassed them. And I thought this was incredible. And it hit me so hard. Something I thought that was really interesting about it is that the English title is The Boy and a Heron, but... The Japanese title for it is How Do You Live? I think that is such a better title. I agree. And fits, I mean, Boy in the Heron fits the story, but just the the themes and what this story is telling, I feel like How Do You Live hits harder. The Boy in the Heron sounds like the title for a kid's movie. Yes. And How it. Do You Live sounds like the title of a movie. And I don't think that this is a kid's movie. I think well, ki- I think kids can watch it. And like I think kids that are watching it and parents that are letting their kids watching it or taking their kids to it is really special. Those I are mean, they're cool kids. We we watched with our, our our niece who's just about 12 now. One of the movies we watched with her like fairly often, like I'm going to say a handful of times and it was something that she would ask to watch was Spirited Away. And mm. I think Spirited Away also has some like fairly mature themes. It's scarier, I would say, than The Boy and the Heron. Yeah. Um, she would call it the pig movie. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because the parents turn into pigs. But she was like three and she really liked it. And did she understand all of the thematics of it? No. But I think something in the Miyazaki films that I've seen, and I haven't seen all of them. I've seen Totoro a million times, Spirited Away quite a few times. And we've seen Howl's Moving Castle, Ponyo, and Kiki's Delivery Service. And I think that's it. Um, we've seen Grave of the Fireflies, which isn't Miyazaki, but is Studio Ghibli. Um, but of the films of his that I've seen, there is this like Alice in Wonderland quality of starting in like an everyday world. And then there being some kind of a descent into a fantastical place that is both wondrous and scary and confusing. And I feel like that's very that's that, that's appealing to most children, I think this, because that's what the world feels like as a kid. Mm-hmm. The world feels like everything's confusing and scary and funny and amazing and too big and outlandish. And yeah, I mean, when so when we went and saw this, I was actually really surprised. I thought that we had hacked the system. Sometimes when you and I want to go see a kid's film, 
in the theater, we'll go see it in VIP, even though we're not VIP people, mm-hmm. just so that there won't be any kids there. Because many a years ago, we saw Incredibles 2 with a theater full of kids literally running around and screaming. Yeah. Um, so so ne- never more, as, <laughs> as the Raven says. Um, so we thought, what a hack. There won't be kids at a subtitled movie because kids can't read. Yeah. Um, kids are stupid. And then we heard like the voices of children before the movie began. Um, we're like, do they know? Like, Yeah, we were like, do, do they think they came to the English one? But then there was no, I didn't see anybody get up and leave and there was no talking during the movie. So my theory would be that the kids know how to speak Japanese. Yeah. Because um, our niece, who's just like just about five, right? I think she's just about five she could totally go and watch a Mandarin film. She would be able to understand it perfectly. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you could totally take a multilingual Japanese speaker, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. But those kids were good. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Bilingual children. For the win. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I do love that stories like this could be regarded as kids' movies. I mean, that kind of goes against what we love about what Guillermo del Toro said about animated films. Like that's not a genre. It's a medium. But I also, no, I don't think it does because I think I have such a massive respect for filmmakers that are making films accessible to children and adults Mm -hmm. that there's, and that it's just as rich for a child as it is for an adult. Although perhaps and, I, and I'm going to I'm going to put like Shrek on that list mm-hmm. where it's amazing as a kid and it's amazing as an adult. And there's things you'll catch as an adult that you wouldn't catch as a kid. And maybe things that delighted you as an adult that don't really delight you or delighted you as a kid that don't really delight you as an adult. I still think it's a medium. I think those filmmakers are not looking down on kids and saying films don't belong to you. Yeah. I think they're saying films belong to you, but also to all of us. It's kind of we recently watched an interview with Paul Kane because we've been had our uh, judgment slapped right off our face about Wonka. Lots of people are liking it, and we thought it looked really whatever. Um, and now we're like, oh, we love Paddington. Of course it's going to be good. And Paul Kane said he sets out to make movies for a younger audience that adults will like too. So I still think that's it's yeah. using it as a medium for everybody. Yeah, and I, it sounds like I'm trying to draw a line in the sand. I'm really not. I'm really on the same page as you. Like, I just, I love that stories like this are accessible to us, but also to children and that we're able to take different things away from it, depending on how old you are Mm -hmm. and when you see it in your life. Like, I would love to watch this movie with our five-year-old niece. I would love to understand what she gets out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think... Even if it's just like, the heron's funny. (laughs) (laughs) And I think she'd like the little Wampa Wampas or whatever they're called. Who wouldn't? (laughs) They're great. Um, But I've heard, because we haven't seen every Miyazaki film, I have heard um, that this film kind of makes reference to his entire filmography, Hmm. stylistically and thematically, that it kind of moves through his filmography in a a way that's just like mind-blowing if you've seen all of his films. Um, and I definitely felt as somebody who my most frequently watched Miyazaki is Totoro because I was watching it when I was a little kid. Uh, my grandma had it. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. And I always watched it at her house. We didn't own it. So it was like a grandma's house staple, which is a special kind of thing. 
you know, mm-hmm. film you watch at your grandma's house only. Bed knobs and broomsticks, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Different kinds of movies. Um, but I definitely felt that, like, when um, Mojito goes to the kind of rural place that he's in, that felt very Totoro, where they, like, move to this more rural space while the girl's mom is, like, in hospital. Mm-hmm. Like, that a lot of the, like, setting reminded me of that. Um, and the, like, the, the older grannies, I feel like they kind of exist in, in a lot of his film, but reminded me of the, like, really kind neighbor, neighbor grandma, mm. um, from Totoro. So I, I, I got parts of that just didn't get the whole thing because we haven't seen all of his movies. So it'd be really beautiful to watch them all and then go back and revisit, um, this one. Something I really love about Japanese culture as at least as it's depicted on film is how everybody just calls like older ladies, like grannies <laughs> <laughs> related to them or not. That, that's just what they're called. The ticket for me with this film is I just let it completely wrap me up in its embrace. And I really implore everybody else to do that as well, to just totally lean in and just let the movie take you because you absolutely deserve for this movie to do that for you. You you mentioned this before, but this being the first Miyazaki that we've seen in the theater, I was just so astounded by the visuals. Like, it's so beautiful. And, I mean, we had, like, we recently covered Paprika and got to see that in the theater. And there is something so special about seeing, like, hand-drawn animation on the big screen like not Pixar bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just, I just like was a wash in this film. And then, you know, there, I started crying fairly early on in the film. This is, this is a parent grief movie and it's, mm-hmm. and it's a movie about like, how do you give your, how, I mean, the, yeah, the, the Japanese title, how do you live? Like, and I think that means multiple things. Like how do you live with the things that have happened how do you move forward? How do you incorporate the past into moving forward in a way that doesn't weigh you down, but lightens you? Um, it's really, it's really beautiful. And there's a lot of complicated stuff happening in here in both like very literal, but then also these very symbolic ways. I just cried throughout this whole movie. Yeah. <laughs> I cried so much. And then, you know, when you like, maybe you don't know, but this happens to me like decently often when a movie I didn't necessarily expect that I was going to find a movie particularly emotional. And then I'm like, did Elliot find it emotional too? Um, but you cried too. So then I felt, oh, yeah. felt better. There I was a movie we watched last week that I think same thing happened in where I was like, did he, did he cry too? Because <laughs> I cried. Yeah, no, I, I got welly multiple times throughout. And then there's just one moment near the end that just sealed the freaking deal. Oh yeah. It's honestly, this film is, it's it's absolutely beautiful. I'm definitely seeing seeing different uh kind of like between fours, four point fives, and fives online. And for me, I think for what I've seen of Miyazaki, this just hit me on a more personal level. Mm. Um in terms of questions about how I live my life and experiences I've had. And mm-hmm. I just really, really loved it. I also um I don't know if this is like true, true, but I was reading that either all of or most of Miyazaki's films have had female protagonists. 
And it was like a real change to have it be like a young male protagonist in mm. this. Um, which I, I, I was so moved by Mahito's story, like, and, and watching him through that like journey of grief and change and, and who am I and what does the future look like? And I also thought this film had some really profound things to say about like more universally, like what do we owe each other? What do we owe future generations and what do we owe past generations in terms of like how we take care of the earth? Mm-hmm. Like I thought there was, there's like a, a very individual level that you can look at this film from in terms of like your own history, the people who have come before you, the people who are coming after you, but then also on like a grander scale of like us as humans, what do we owe the humans who came before us that we've never met? And what do we owe the humans that are going to come after us? Yeah, hundred percent. And it was so, so beautifully executed, like you said, and the cherry on top is the the score and even just the little taste that you got in the trailer for it was enough to just make your heart swell. It was incredible. And it was just such a joy to get to see this on the big screen. I'm so glad it's doing well because it was the most expensive movie ever made in Japan. Really? And they didn't do any like advertising for it in Japan. There was Mm. no trailer, no nothing. It was just, here's, here's this movie. It did have advertising outside outside of japan but um i'm happy that it's so successful i mean i'm not surprised miyazaki is if there's like one most common thing i hear students say they like it's miyazaki films Mm. like my students and and over the last like nearly eight years of teaching it's kind of consistently and howl's moving castle tends to be their favorite um that and Five Nights at Freddy's, man. They love Five Nights at Freddy's, let me tell you. Yeah. The, I mean, the cute moments were so cute. The sad moments were so sad. It just made my heart swell. It was so beautiful. Yet another 2023 film on its grief shit, and I'm totally here for it. 2023 is the year of grief, I say it. Um. Yeah, it was just... I'm so I'm so grateful for it. I loved it so much. It's so great to see a movie in the last month of the year and have it be one of your favorites of the year. How did The Boy and the Heron make you feel? Completely consumed by its heart and beauty. How did it make you feel? Not us mirroring each other. Um, it made me feel completely in awe of the animation and the story. Beautiful. Okay. It is the holiday season, so we wanted to watch a holiday movie. And we revisited the 2020 holiday dramedy, Happiest Season. It was written and directed by Clea Duvall. The screenplay was written by Clea Duvall and Mary Holland. And it stars a bevy of babes, let me tell you. So we got Kristen Stewart as Abby, Mackenzie Davis as Harper, Mary Steenbergen as Tipper, Victor Garber as Ted, Allison Brie as Sloan, Mary Holland as Jane, Dan Levy as John, and Aubrey Plaza as Riley Johnson. I don't know why I give her a last name, but she has a last name. (laughs) Synopsis, a holiday romantic comedy that captures the range of emotions tied to wanting your family's acceptance, being true to yourself, and trying not to ruin Christmas. Just from that synopsis, you could tell that that's kind of in our wheelhouse, right up our alley. 
What do you think of Happiest Season? I feel like Happiest Season got done dirty in a handful of ways. Mm, do tell. So first of all, this was supposed to have a theatrical release, but it came out in December 2020. Mm-hmm. And as we talked about, I believe, last week, I do think most people still have like a, if it went straight to streaming, there's something not amazing about it. You mm-hmm. know, something lesser about it. Even when it was like, well, nothing's coming out. But, you know, there's movies that got pushed and didn't have their original release date so that they could be released when theaters reopened. So this thought of like, well, these movies have been determined to be whatever. We'll just release them to stream and we won't wait. We won't hold off on it. So I feel like that's one thing. The other thing is I feel like myself included, a lot of us queers felt like, especially like queer femmes or like people who like were really longing for like a lesbian holiday movie. Mm-hmm. Or just like lesbian movies in general. I feel like we have a lot more queer men on film than we have queer women on film and especially like beautifully happy <laughs> queer women on mm. film. I think a lot of us were like, this is going to be my favorite Christmas movie I've ever seen in my life. Mm. Right? Because you've got Clea Duvall and then you've got this just, like you just mentioned, this like absolutely stacked cast. Tegan and Sarah did an original song for it. It just felt like all the perfect things in the making. So I just feel like this film had too much pressure on it. And I remember the first time we watched it, I was like, that was not nearly as good as I thought it was going to be. And I was disappointed. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you were too. Yeah, especially going into it, like hoping it's like the first Christmas in COVID and we just wanted a COVID comfort during our first Christmas apart from our families. So I feel like we put a lot of stock into this movie on top of everything you just said. And so I feel like that was a little unfair to this movie. And I don't think we're the only people who that happened with who it was like, Oh, well that wasn't good, but it's not that it wasn't good. It's that it wasn't what you thought it was going to be. Yeah. And that's not necessarily fair to it. Now we've watched it twice since our original watch in 2020. And I like it more every time I watch it. I a hundred percent agree. Is it a perfect movie? No, but I think it's really playing in like a similar a similar holiday feeling to like the holiday or love actually, mm-hmm. which I, I mean, I'm done with love actually, but I used to really like it. I mm-hmm. still quite like the holiday. It's got a similar vibe of like, like the synopsis says this idea of it's not, it's not just like an easy Christmas comfort movie. Like it's dealing with the complicated parts of Christmas and Christmas is damn complicated. Oh yeah. I mean, holidays in general, like whatever, like the big, the biggest holiday that you celebrate with the people in your life, it's complicated. Yep. And for us, that's Christmas. It's the biggest like communal, communally celebrated holiday. Mm-hmm. I now really appreciate that about this film. I appreciate that, yes, there's an easiness to it, but there's also like touching on the complication and difficult parts of the holiday mm-hmm. and not just like sweeping that under the rug. And I feel like to what you're saying too, for this being a, queer holiday movie and more specifically a lesbian holiday movie it deserves to have an easiness to it and have a bit of that complication to balance it out i mean i'm sure there have been some like queer and and queer women hallmark holiday movies i don't doubt but as like the first more big budget yeah yeah promoted yeah film 
it needs to pave the way so that then people can go in, you know, this film does decently well, I think. And then folks can make, you know, take that and be like, this is what I loved about it. And this is what it didn't do for me. And now I'm going to make the version of this that I want to see. Yeah. You know, so I I actually quite like it. I mean, first of all, all the babes. I mean, somebody's going to be daddy of the week. Like <laughs> happiest season, more like horniest season. My God. Yeah. Like, I mean, Mackenzie Davis is, you're not a big um, crush person. Like you definitely will be like that as an attractive human being, mm-hmm. but you don't have a lot of people that you're like, wow, that's my crush. I do feel like the two that you continually come back to as like a legit crush are Jonathan Groff and Mackenzie Davis. I mean, those are like legit crushes for you. I mean, I want to kiss Mackenzie Davis. I want to marry Dan Levy and I want to be Kristen Stewart. (laughs) Yeah. uh, All of that. Like check, check, (laughs) check. I, I, I believe that. (laughs) I also feel like you'd love to have Dan Levy as like your best friend. Yeah. Well, I mean, checks out. You would want to marry your best friend. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Your best friend would be the person you want to spend every day with. So, yeah. um, Yeah. I mean, legit. I, Everyone in this, but like also Aubrey Plaza. Yeah. Let's get real. Aubrey Plaza is like the spiciest, most beautiful babe in this. I also, I get, I have this like little fondness for anytime we see Mackenzie Davison in anything because I feel like she's not as well known as she is to us. And maybe yeah. I'm like off my rocker with that. But we loved her in Halt and Catch Fire, which I think is criminally underseen. Mm-hmm. It is one of my favorite shows of all time. Um, the first season is like the worst season. But she's hyper babe in that. Oh, yeah. Um, and th- her character arc throughout the whole series is incredible. And where that show goes is also incredible. Yeah, Halt and Catch Fire and then Station Eleven, which I also feel is criminally underseen. I feel like she's just been done dirty by like the bigger budget films that she's been in because she was in like the turning of the screw or whatever and then she was in that one terminator movie that everybody hated and unfortunately i feel like that might have led people to kind of write her off or not see her in the light which i think she deserves to be seen in which is films like this and the tv shows that we've mentioned because she is incredible and san junipero episode oh of course fuck me yeah one of the best pieces of television ever made. So I'm, I'm, I can't believe I still, I'm, I'm a gog at the cast of this, of this movie. Um, and then the Clea Duvall of it all, like what a perfect person to put behind the camera and to have championing this movie and writing this movie. And Clea Duvall has said that a lot of this film is autobiographical in like theme and emotion. Mm. I mean, we we love a emotionally <laughs> autobiographical film. So no, this isn't her direct exact experience, but a lot of what's happening in the film like echoes her own experiences around the holidays. Um, yeah. And I and the more I watch it, the more I feel it. Like when this first came out and people were like, that sucked. I thought I was going to love it. So because I didn't love it, I'm going to say I hated it. Um, there was a lot of like, extreme villainization of Mackenzie Davis's character of Harper and being like, you know, Kristen Stewart should just leave her like, Oh my goodness, that's ridiculous. And I think, yes, the movie is hyper focusing on this, like, or like it's, it's narrowing in on these like few days where Harper is not her best, 
But the film actually opens with a series of animations from over the past year of this like beautiful relationship that the two have. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about everybody else, but I'm not going to abandon a person that I've spent a year loving and getting to know because of a few bad days. Yeah. Like literally. (laughs) That's ridiculous. Literally less than a week. It's definitely something that needs to be a conversation, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but it's not a, like everything that happens in this movie makes sense to me. And I put this in my letterbox review, but I mean, if you are capable of resisting the bad patterns and tendencies that come that like family can pull out in you and like revert you back to who you are when you were younger than good for you. But I feel like most of us aren't. No. Most of us have to work so hard to resist that dynamic. These like old, old behaviors. We all put on some form of mask when we get around our families as adults. And especially when you're in a pressure cooker, like the holidays, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe I just have a lot of empathy for Harper because I think you would agree with this, but a lot of the dynamic in her family feels like dynamics in my family. Mm-hmm. Not not exactly the same because my family ain't rich. Yeah. And I don't have a dad. But there's um, roles for everybody yeah, within the family. And a lot of like how things look and expectations and pressure and, you know. Mm-hmm. And how everybody slots into family it's complicated i feel yeah i mean admittedly i think after the first watch we were just like man harper stinky poo poo but like watching it now it still sucks to see some of the decisions and some of the things that harper does i think i just feel for her now oh yeah like i'm like it's on on this watch more than previous ones i'm i'm just like fuck like i i get it i understand where she's coming from and it pressure cooker is a perfect description of what is going on the life she's living in as soon as they get there. Um, I think everything leading up to before they get there, I think she could make some yeah, decisions hundred percent in terms of how she communicates with Abby. But yeah, um, don't, don't write her off. Look for the, look for the nuance, look for the complexities, put yourself in those shoes. Plus this is a movie. We literally had a episode titled, let, just let case do be gay. <laughs> yeah. ages ago and this is a movie that lets Case 2 be gay so any movie that lets her be gay makes me super happy mm-hmm. any queer Christmas I'm just going to want more of and I don't know if this is dead in the water but as of May 2021 Mary Holland and Cleo Duvall said they were in the early stages of a sequel I will be there with Christmas bells on happy Easter season <laughs> the more happier season <laughs> I don't know that's good but I would definitely watch it oh yeah at this point, this is just a holiday comfort watch. I I want to continue watching it every year. It has some really good bits in it. It has it has some really good heart. Uh, if you give me Dan Levy delivering an emotional monologue, I'm probably going to weep. So you wish me luck when Good Grief comes out, his new film that's coming out. I love a film that explores complicated family stuff and explores the division of like young adult life and later adult life as well and how things in your young adult life can set you up or set you down a path maybe even in the eyes of your family that isn't accurate to who you are as a person but you feel like you need to adhere to what was established way back here yeah i i really enjoy this film and also jane is the mvp i'm just just saying it here 
So. Yeah, she's she's awesome. The movie's really funny. Yes, it's frustrating at times, uh, but it's also really sweet. And I think that's where some people kind of take issue with it because when it is sweet, they feel like it's too easy, particularly like where the movie wraps up in. But I'm like, I don't know. I I'm I'm okay with it. Like as I sometimes get, we need a little wish fulfillment, you know. As I get older, we've talked about this on the show. As I get older, the thing that makes me the most emotional and just hits me the most and really resonates with me is just kindness and joy and happiness and people being kind to each other. And if that comes across as like schmaltzy and quote unquote too nice, I'm here for it. I think that we live in a pretty difficult world. So if there's any bright spots we can find, I'm all I'm all here for it. How does Happiest Season make you feel? It makes me feel bittersweet reflection on the pressures of the holidays, but it gives me a lot of babes. (laughs) Yes. You? A warm sense of babely holiday joy. The next film of the week was my mystery movie pick. We each had one mystery movie pick this week, which is nice. I like when we get at least one in each. Mm -hmm. Um, I was feeling some intense jealousy at particularly Letterboxd friends who have had a chance to see poor things because apparently Edmonton is not a big enough market to get movies in their limited release schedules. Stick it. And I refuse to leave Edmonton. Um, but that's one of the difficulties of living here. Uh, hopefully we can be a part of making this a place that distributors see as important to cinema and we can start getting some limited release movies because I think that there's a pretty strong Edmonton movie community. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that jealousy, I picked a different Yorgos Lanthimos film. I picked The Killing of a Sacred Deer, 2017, um, directed by Yorgos Lanthimos and written by Lanthimos and Ephthemus Philippou. It stars Colin Farrell as Stephen, Nicole Kidman as Anna, Barry Keoghan himself as Martin, Rafi Cassidy as Kim, Sonny Soljic as Bob, Alicia Silverstone as Martin's mother, and Bill Camp as Matthew. Synopsis is Stephen, a charismatic surgeon, is forced to make an unthinkable sacrifice after his life starts to fall apart when the behavior of a teenage boy he has taken under his wing turns sinister. What did you think of The Killing of a Sacred Deer? I mean, despite the FOMO we're feeling about poor things, the day that this episode drops, we will be seeing it. We've already got our tickets. This is true. So don't feel too sorry for us. (laughs) We love Alanthimos. Um, cause he is really good with the icky ficky, icky fiction, if you will. And I'm actually surprised we haven't covered this on the show because I feel like we watched it just prior to us starting the podcast and it's one of those films that just stuck, like sticks with me. The thing that I really noticed on this view, on this watch was that the dialogue and the line delivery feels like it's being delivered from aliens from another planet or like (laughs) like learning how humans speak or how ai maybe thinks we speak because it just feels so cold and feels so distant and it's really disarming as an as somebody in the audience and i feel like that exists to a degree in the lobster as well yeah but it was interesting because we haven't seen many or rather we've only seen one of Lanthimos's pre-English language films. Um, and he has quite a few that we haven't seen um, that are in Greek, I believe. Yeah, and I think they're on Mubi. 
I most think, of them are, yeah. I think. Um, we have seen Dogtooth, which is kind of, I think, his most known non-English language film. You want to talk about Icky Ficky? Yeah. Heavens. I'm sure one day we'll cover it, but it is. That one's Icky. Yeah. Um, But Killing of a Sacred Deer feels more like a progression from Dogtooth. And then The Lobster feels like a progression from Killing of a Sacred Deer into The Favorite. Yeah. But the lobster came before Killing of a Sacred Deer. Oh, really? Yeah, and it feel it feels like it should have been the other way around, which yeah, is really interesting. interesting to me. Um, and now the favorite and uh, this most recent that we're going to be seeing, the day this episode drops, poor things, they weren't written by Lanthimos, mm-hmm. um, and his previous films are and co-written, I think, always or most always with. Uh, Philippu, I feel like they they co-wrote films together quite often mm. because this Dogtooth is so icky and like not like if it if there's comedy it is the blackest of comedy yes and Killing of a Sacred Deer is the same in that whereas the Lobster some of its funniness is just quite funny and the favorite as well and I feel like Poor Things looks like it's going to be like that as well where yes yeah. it's dark yes there's some ickiness but it's also really hilarious and it's yeah. using humor to. Think about these areas of life that that are a little taboo, but in not necessarily a disturbing way. Mm. Whereas Killing of a Sacred Deer and Dogtooth are disturbing. Yeah. And I feel like it's really cool. I mean, we have we haven't seen poor things yet, but I feel like he's been able to carve out this this voice of his where he's actually collaborating with his writers, really great at pulling out some really bizarre humor. Yeah. And very off kilter humor, but because he can do bleak and dark so well that that can act as punctuations. Like there's moments in the favorite, which has a lot of laughs in it, but there's some really dark stuff in there. And when it goes there, you're like, you're kind of just gripping the seat. For sure. Just like, oh oh my God, this is really upsetting. And I feel like Killing of a Sacred Deer is playing more in the bleakness and in the icky disturbing with like, a spattering of humor. Yes. Um, now I think that that like, like you described that like cold or like if you, if you put on this movie and you didn't know who any of these actors were and you'd never heard the name Yorgos Lanthimos. And so you didn't know that like, Oh, these are a list actors. Mm-hmm. You might think this is just a bad movie. <laughs> like <laughs> yes. Badly acted, badly written. When you look at that as purposeful, I think that dialogue demonstrates the lack of connection. Yeah between all of the members of the family and how they're all hiding what they want and who they are and performing for what they think people want them to be or what they think they want. Um, Or what a family is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that that's really compelling. Mm -hmm. Um, The first time we saw this movie, I was so gripped by the mystery of like what is truly going on. And I'd be curious to watch the trailer because where the movie actually kind of like kicks into high gear where, as the synopsis says, the teenage boy turns sinister. It's quite far into the movie Mm -hmm. when like what's really going on becomes clear. And even then, I don't know if clear is the right word. Mm -hmm. Um, And shockingly, when we rewatched this, we didn't really remember it. Yeah. Like I remember moments that are just burned it, into my yes. memory. There's some culminating moments that the last act of this film 
is so intense. But it's so interesting because even with what happens, you can kind of take it at face value, which I feel like I did last viewing. But I start questioning the validity of what happens and if it truly is playing out the way that it, it is, which is great. I love that it raised questions like that. So this, I don't know if I read about this um, the first time we watched the movie, but it's actually a modernization of a myth. Oh. Um, so, and Yorgos Lanthimos actually directly references the myth when um, Colin Farrell's character goes to his children's school to like inquire about his children. The principal says that his daughter wrote a A plus paper on the myth of Iphigenia. Mm. And this movie is a modernization of that myth. So in that myth, I don't have it up in front of me, but if I remember broad strokes of it, um, the, there's a, a man who has to like kill his daughter mm. to save his people. Mm. And there's a connection to the reason it's called the killing of a sacred deer is connected to that myth. Mm. And so you wouldn't know that unless you know the story of that myth. And I actually found in, in reading like the Wikipedia the Wikipedia. Wikipedia. The Wikipedia page for the myth of Iphigenia, it like really enriched this film for me. Mm. Um, I like the film anyway, but yeah. it really made me think about, I think it's such a moving and rich exercise to take something that clearly has had meaning to the world if it's a myth that has continued to proliferate, right? If it's a myth we still tell and we still look back on and it's still taught in universities and stuff to take that, but apply it in a modern context. Um, I really like stories that do that. I mm -hmm. can't think of any others right now. And although I know there are lots mm -hmm. um, and I know that I've liked them, but it, it yeah, I, I, I think if you watch this movie going in later and reading about the myth of Iphigenia, I think is really worth it. Clearly some homework I need to do as well. Cause I did not do that. Because yeah. I, I was also like, killing of a sacred deer. Like, why is it called why that? Why is it called that? Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it after. It would, it would ruin the film to, to tell you. But I, I feel just getting back to what you were saying about the mystery building and kind of the impending dread that you start feeling. If you're looking for a person to drive that feeling, Barry Keogh is your guy. <laughs> this is the first movie I believe we ever saw him in. Yeah. And. He's striking in it. I do feel like perhaps he's been, because of this movie, he's been often cast as like the little freak. Yeah. Um, and I think he's a very talented actor and a very handsome man. And I think he can play roles other than the little weirdo. Yeah. Um, and even in Saltburn where he is the leading man. And I think he's portrayed quite attractive like he he looks attractive in the movie and not that i'm saying he doesn't anywhere else but he's supposed to be a teenager in this yeah and then you know in banshees of inishir and it seems to me like he's got some trauma that keeps him in kind of a child's mindset and so that feels icky to find him attractive in that either and even in in the green knight i'm like just an Ugh. asshole yeah like, go away so and then he's gonna be in the i'm assuming whatever the next batman movie is as well which is right. And he's going to be a little freak in that. So I would yeah. love to see him get to, I'm sure he, maybe he has been in some movies where he isn't playing a little weirdo, but this movie certainly cemented him as capable of that. Like he's just, he's so good in this movie and it's his performance that drives the dread. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really well put as well as the camera work. Oh yeah. 
I've seen some people and I, I hadn't uh, made this connection, but as soon as I read this, I was like, oh, absolutely. The camera work is very similar to the camera work in The Shining. Mm. Of kind of these like slow sweeping uh, dolly zooms mm. that push in and like n- narrow in the frame. So it feels like it, it feels like you're becoming enclosed, but slowly. Yeah. Like to the point that you might not even realize it's happening like a spider's web, you know, so purposeful. I don't know. I think this, I I only gave this film a four to five, but I think it's an incredible film. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think that the storytelling, I think the visually it totally works for me. And you got like some really fucking heavy hitters in this movie. I I really we've been pretty vocal about our love for Colin Farrell. And I love when he gets to use his real accent. Yeah. And like I love that they Yorgos was just like, I want the Irish boys. I want <laughs> Colin Farrell and I want Bear Keogh. And then uh Martin McDonough was the same thing. He's like, I saw Killing of a Sacred Deer. We're putting those two guys in this movie too. <laughs> and I also love like I have a difficult time now with Sonny Zeltrick because I really love the God of War games and he plays Atreus in those games and all I can hear is Kratos who throughout the entire first game just calls him boy. (laughs) (laughs) So the whole time I'm just like, that's the boy from God of War. Yeah, that means nothing to me. All I know, and this is not that actor's fault, but mid-90s is one of the few movies I hate with the passion of my entire soul. I I really hated that movie. It's, It's very rare that... If you listen to this show, you know we tend to see the positives in a movie. It's very rare that I like full on 100% hate a movie. Yeah. I think it's one of the few movies I've rated a half star. I think the other one is Human Centipede (laughs) 2. So, you know, and that is not a young actor's fault. Uh, I will blame Jonah Hill for that one. Mid 90s is the Human Centipede 2 of A24 films. (laughs) 100%. I hate that movie so much, but I really like this movie. Yep. I think it's, I, I would be interested to see following poor things, Yorgos Lanthimos do another movie that's in the more icky, le- like he's always playing in the dark comedy. Mm-hmm. I, I think I'm going to be ready for one that is more dark with a side of comedy as opposed to more comedy with a side of dark, which his yeah. last handful of films have been. And I think that it seems like Emma Stone might be becoming a bit of a muse. So I would love to see her thrown into the mix. Like if he's going to continue making kind of American forward films instead of going back to lesser known actors, I would love to see her performing in a film like A Killing of the Sacred Deer. His next film he has on the docket is a movie called Kind of Kindness um, that he is directing. It's an anthology film, but he's directing all of it and he's co-writing it with uh, Filippo again mm-hmm. so this will be his first film in a while that he's written and it's going to start Emma Stone, Jesse Plemons, Willem Dafoe Margaret Qualley, Hong Chow, Joe Alvin Mamadou Athi and Hunter Schaefer holy fucking shit that's stacked <laughs> Yeah. so I'm looking forward to that and I also I really um, we recently covered quite on I, I actually love an anthology work Mm -hmm. especially when it's all directed by the same person when Mm -hmm. it's not like oh we just said everybody make something and let's put it together i really love a like purposeful anthology yes you know even like maybe it'll be like a certain women type thing Mm -hmm. um 
So I'm actually really excited for that. And I hope that in getting it, getting the anthology aspect of it, that we can play that the film we as if I'm a part of it, <laughs> that the film can have maybe some segments that are really dark and some that are have levity and maybe he can play with the rhythm of that as yeah. it like shifts tones. But I'm, I'm excited for it. Uh, yeah, th- I'm really excited for that. That sounds amazing. And we're excited for poor things. Look forward to that coming on next week's episode. Yeah, we have a couple. I have quite a few letterbox friends that have seen it and given it a five out of five. So, yeah, I'm very, very, very excited. How did the killing of a sacred deer make you feel? The best kind of icky. How'd it make you feel? Just echoing you again. It made me feel disturbed in all the best ways. (laughs) Yeah, he's really good at that. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay, we went out to the cinema and watched the 2023 comedy, drama, holiday film, The Holdovers. It was directed by Alexander Payne, written by David Hemmingson. And our big three in this one are Paul Giamatti as Paul Hunnam, Dominic Sessa as Angus Tully, and Divine Joy Randolph as Mary Lamb. Synopsis. A cranky history teacher at a remote prep school is forced to remain on campus over the holidays with a troubled student who has no place to go. What do you think of the holdovers? So I was, when we very first saw a trailer for this, I was like, that looks like something I'd like. Yes. And then I remembered that there's an allegation against Alexander Payne. Mm-hmm. And I really try to make sure that I don't see works by people who are known, people who ca- like are known as people who have caused harm or there's allegations against them. So I just want to acknowledge that makes me feel icky. It's, a, it's the reason we took a long time to go and see this. Yeah. And I still don't necessarily feel great about that. But we had quite a few people who like, reached out to (laughs) us or to like some to me and then some to us like through our instagram page like through the bad dad at bad dad dot rad dad (laughs) instagram page to say like have you seen the holdovers you'd really love it and so we were like let's go see it and and this felt like because it's a holiday film i wanted to see it before christmas like if we were gonna Mm -hmm. and this actually was this was a sad day because we were gonna go take our Four-year-old niece, whose favorite movie of all time is Home Alone. We were going to go see, uh, take her to see Home Alone in the theater, but she was quite sick. I think mm-hmm. still is quite sick, poor kiddo. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we we didn't end up going. And we were like, okay, well, if we're not going to Home Alone, we don't need to see it in the theater. We've seen it in the theater before. Mm-hmm. Um, 
why don't we go see a different holiday film? And I really liked it. I really, really liked it. Yeah. Just on the topic of multiple people reaching out, I was also tickled that our letterbox buddy, Michel, I think the first line of the review was something like Paul Giamatti is the raddest dad. <laughs> and I was just like, that's our language. I love that. And then and then uh, he was one of the people who reached out to me and said, you got to go see the holdovers. So really sweet. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. Like this was the time to see it was leading up to Christmas. I enjoyed the heck out of this. I mean, first off, it's so damn funny. Due yeah. in part mostly for me to Dominic Sessa. Yeah, we we laughed in like a, a way where like you're laughing and you can't stop laughing. Oh, yeah. More in this than we have in anything in a long time. Yeah. Um, not, nobody else in the theater was laughing. No. It was very, there was only uh, six other people in the theater, but we were, we were like, we had the sillies, let me tell you. Oh, yeah. I could like haven't laughed that hard in a long time. Um, just speaking briefly to the people that were in the theater, it was very funny. There was a group of three people, one man and two two women, and they're all older folks. But we were laughing because we go to a lot of movies with our buddy Ashley and we took a we took a sneaky photo of them from behind. And we're like, we ran into us 30 years in the future at the movie <laughs> tonight. <laughs> And Ashley was like, oh, my God, to a T. <laughs> yeah, we call ourselves the platonic thruple because yeah. <laughs> we, even when Ashley's partner is around and we invite him to things, he's often like, no, I'm okay. You guys can see that without me. You can go to Toronto without yeah, me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he does come to movies with us, but he only if he wants to see it. <laughs> yeah. Bless his heart. So not only was this extremely funny, but there is so much heart in this film. And I feel like. Paul Giamatti specifically is a master of this. It got me thinking of his whole monologue that he has in Lady in the Water, which yeah. always wrecks me. We love him in Lady in the Water. But I also think Divine Joy Randolph crushes in this movie and she adds so much of the heart to this and like just quiet emotion and beauty. I I love I loved whenever she was on screen and I loved what she brought to the dynamic of Paul Giamatti and these fucking boys. <laughs> I mean, I am a real sucker for like a cranky older person and a angsty younger person. Yeah. Or like angry world's unfair younger person finding connection with each other and like through seeing the faults of the other person coming to reflect on themselves. Yes. Like I'm a, I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of that. And this movie is that in droves. Yeah. I mean that, but this is also when we were walking out of the theater, I'm like, this is our holy triumvirate of being a movie about grief, found family and complicated dad stuff. hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent. And you know what? I think this is going to become a holiday staple for us because yes. I love a film set on the holidays and the holidays matter to it, but it's not like a Christmas movie. Yeah. You know, I mean, I love a Christmas movie too, but yeah, I think it's, this has the inverse of the shining where like the snow, like the falling snow, the snow laden ground is such a key part of the film, but in this, it creates a feeling of coziness mm. and in the shining, it feel, creates a sense of coldness and isolation. But both of those are movies that like, I think are best watched if you live in a place that's like 
it's currently snowing where you are. Unfortunately for us, climate change has completely fucked Alberta. Um, I mean the world, but we have basically no snow on the ground and it's almost Christmas. And that is like, usually it starts snowing shortly before or after Halloween and doesn't stop mm-hmm. until like April. And we've just gotten dustings that yeah. melt. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's scary. We can see the grass in our backyard and that is scary. Everybody's saying it's going to be a brown Christmas in Alberta. And that is, I, I don't think I've ever experienced that and in like, my 33 Christmases. Yeah. And not only does that suck, but I'm just really dreading how dry next summer is going to be and how, Anyway, I don't want to get all doomy and gloomy, but it's going to But suck. this did make me reflect on that because I was like, there was, I didn't mention this to you, but when we saw this in the theater, first of all, it was our third impeccable Cineplex audience in a row. I didn't think about that. Good call. Yep. And I was like, how, how is this happening? Mm-hmm. Please keep the streak going. <laughs> um, but it was the perfect temperature in the theater. Like it was like, slightly toasty yeah in like such a cozy way and you and i have often gone to movies like on christmas day including like with my whole family we went once went with my whole family to um this is 40 yeah on I, like on christmas after dinner like late I, at night I, mi- I miss that tradition i thought that was did we do it more than one year i think we did it a couple times like when i was like newly in the picture in the picture and we would go to like leduc cinema yeah. because they're open on christmas day mm-hmm. and we would go to like the late show yeah. that was before there was any kids right yeah. i think that's what's changed it is it would just be like everybody bundles up and we and we go out to a movie together and and that specific, highly specific feeling if you live in a place that gets really, really cold and especially a place that gets really, really cold with snow of like the theater is so warm and cozy and like holding you. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you're going to have to bundle back up out and then you drive home on these like almost empty streets with the like glistening snow and everything's just quiet and beautiful and soft and the snow softens things. Mm-hmm. Like I miss that. I miss that feeling and this film evokes it so beautifully of like the quiet of the snow and the comfort of the snow and, you know, sitting in your house and feeling warm as the snow falls outside. Um, and just it just made me sad that 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 the theater felt like that. It felt that way. I've mm-hmm. sometimes felt going to see a movie when it's snowing outside. Yeah. And then we walked out and there's no snow on the ground. <laughs> like yeah. it just was sad. Like I'm still wearing my fucking like spring jacket right now. I haven't worn a jacket at all. Yeah. Um, but do you know what I think and really felt added to that whole feeling that you're describing of what this film was just kind of putting out there is that it is making it play and look like a 70s movie. Yes. And Even the like opening credits. Yeah. Like the style and the aesthetic totally nailed it and that is what I really really that's what really gives me like the Christmas feelings (laughs) and I really enjoyed that and I I feel like they absolutely nailed it I thought this film was really funny and heartfelt and also really sad yeah and like I got well multiple times in this movie this feels like a movie that depending on my state of mind when I watch it I could cry a lot Mm -hmm. um but it also made me laugh a lot I really really liked it the folks who reached out to us and said you would like it, they were right. And I could mm-hmm. see us watching this every year yeah. during the holidays. Hopefully next year it'll be snowing. Yeah, I would, I would, I would love that. But yeah, I'm with you. I would rewatch it every Christmas. Um, 
something I thought was really funny is during the movie, they have a a, uh, a part where they're watching New Year's Eve countdown on TV, and it's of Times Square in New York. And there's a movie theater that it doesn't show the full thing, but I could definitely tell that it said Carrie. Uh, so like Carrie was playing there, but it was the new year they were going into. It was 1971. I'm like, Carrie didn't come out till 76. Losers. <laughs> Your oh, stock footage is off. Continuity error. Yeah, this was super fun. I loved it. How did it make you feel? It made me feel moved and comforted by the complexity of connection. Mm-hmm. I love that. How to make you feel? Just made me feel a warm and toasty Christmas joy. Also, not a continuity error, an anachronism. Oh, I just had to clarify that. A girl anachronism? <laughs> just an anachronism. A cinematic anachronism. Okay, moving into the last film we watched this week. It was my mystery movie pick of the week, and I chose the 2022 adventure drama mystery film, The Unknown Country. I'm just going to stop there and say it's not adventure or mystery. Don't think that. Yeah. That's wrong. D- dr- drama. drama. Yeah, yeah. Whoever has tagged adventure and mystery onto that, you are leading people astray and they're going to come away not liking the movie. Yeah, you're just throwing words in there to throw words in there. Take it easy. It was directed by Marissa Maltz and written by Marissa Maltz with story aspects written by Lily Gladstone, Lainey Bearkiller Shangro, and Vanera Tang. And it stars Lily Gladstone as Tana, Raymond Lee as Isaac, and Richard Ray Whitman as Grandpa August. As well as Lainey Bearkiller Shangro as Lainey. Yeah. Synopsis. A grieving woman embarks on an unexpected road trip from the Midwest towards the Texas-Mexico border as she grapples with the pain of her recent loss and seeks to understand her place in the world. Does that sound like something we'll like? I think so. But does it sound like an adventure or a mystery? No. No. <laughs> Uh, what'd you think of The Unknown Country? I didn't know anything about this movie. Like, not a lick about it. When the title came up, I knew that it was the most recent Lily Gladstone movie before Killers of the Flower Moon. Like, I knew that she had made a, a very independent film right before, that came out right before Killers of the Flower Moon. But I didn't know anything about it, and it sounds like you did, didn't I, either. I, yeah, no, I just knew that Lily Gladstone recently won uh, the Gotham Award for her performance in it, and that it recently dropped on Mubi. So I'm like, what an excellent time to get in, to get have the opportunity to watch it. So I was looking forward to it, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't want to know anything about it. I'm just like Lily Gladstone. I'm fucking in. I it is. It. it does take it when you don't know anything about it. I think it takes a little bit to figure out what's going on with the film. Because it is, it's it's a it's an incredibly slow burn, quiet indie film that's a blending aspects of documentary, mm-hmm. more akin to like a Nomadland. Yes, like that's if you liked Nomadland, I think you might like this even better. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're Nomadland and this are exploring two very different things, but I think the tone of the films are quite similar. And I also read a lot of people talking about this film is more like a poem. Like it's more poetic. Mm. Um, it doesn't have this anchored plot. It's more a visual auditory thematic experience that is reflective mm. um, in a really beautiful way. And once I got into it and kind of figured out what was really going on in the film and what it was about, I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah. 
I think that was really beautiful. Yeah, I mean, another one dealing with grief and loss. Classic, you didn't even know. Yeah. I just thought this was so full of beauty and humanity. And I loved and did not expect, but loved the vignettes of real people throughout the film. And yeah. I thought they were they were executed so beautifully. I, I agree. I I this was a film where I wanted to understand a little bit more after watching it about how it came to be. And I found it really wonderful. The whole interview is really wonderful. Interview with um, Marissa Maltz and Lily Gladstone on RogerEbert.com, um, where Marissa Maltz, I guess, had following like a degree in fine art from Columbia University. She was just going on cross country trips to capture 35 millimeter film, mm. um, specifically focusing on like landscape and then like people. Uh, in the American Midwest. So in this very documentary style. And she was getting a haircut in Spearfish, South Dakota when she met Lainey Bear Killer Shangro. Like, so just in like in the spirit of this movie of just, she was just traveling and documenting the people and the landscape. And she met this person and they really connected and they started developing this story where uh, Shangro wanted to like highlight her, uh, Oglala Lakota heritage and and her people and then Maltz wanted to explore like her own journey of traveling across America and meeting people mm. and capturing landscape and they kind of put those two things together and then when they brought Lily Gladstone in um, she helped them develop that further it's really beautiful and it, it feels beautiful. like it was incredibly collaborative and um, let everybody use their talents in the way that was best suited to the film. And mm -hmm. so, you know, at the end of the film, I was like, is the filmmaker indigenous? Cause that's such an important part of the film. And while she isn't, it really feels like it was an, a highly collaborative process mm -hmm. with everybody involved so that they could speak to the parts of the film that were in their area of experience. Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking about killers of the flower moon. Well, this it's, it's interesting because you and I both talked a lot about when we watched Killers of the Flower Moon in my letterbox review, which got, you know, got heated. Mm -hmm. Now when people, I, I've had more comments on that review and I just don't respond to them anymore. Is that true? <laughs> they're not like negative, but they're people being like, I liked it. Um, <laughs> and I'm just like, okay, cool. You said your piece. I don't, I don't need to respond to it. Mm -hmm. um, but I said in that and we talked about how we wanted Molly's story. And I feel like this isn't Molly's story, but I feel like it's the antidote I needed to Killers of the Flower Moon. Yeah. What was, oh, what was the, uh, Godzilla minus one was what we needed for Oppenheimer. Yeah. And Unknown Country is what we wanted. Antidote's a good word for Killers of the Flower Moon. Because it's, you know, and in, in a lot of ways, I think it's not Molly's story that I needed. In fact, I think what I need more is because of the legacy of colonization and harm and displacement and genocide that people like Leonardo DiCaprio's character have inflicted on this world and on indigenous people, I want to see where those indigenous folks are now. And I want to mm -hmm. see that beauty and that resilience and that family and that connection. And um, I have a really beautiful quote from Lily Gladstone from that interview where I guess that, uh, when the story started to be developed, Marissa Maltz was really struggling with like, who's like, what's the anchor of this? Like, what's the, what's the through line of the movie? And, um, 
Lainey Bear Killer Shrine Girl was like, you should have an indigenous woman as the as the lead. But Marissa Maltz was like, I just I can't figure it out. Um, and then she saw certain women and was like, her. I want her. <laughs> it, I, I love that because I didn't I didn't read this interview, but I was going to make the comment of like Lily Gladstone is the anchor of this movie. Yeah. And but then she was like, if I can't get her, this movie won't work. And so uh, Lily Gladstone was in Buster's Malheart, which we haven't seen, but I know of because Rami Malek's in it. Mm-hmm. And Marissa Meltz knows the director of that film, who's a woman and a, and a like newer filmmaker. And she contacted her and said, can you put me in touch with Lily Gladstone? And then that director reached out to Lily Gladstone and said, would you be okay if I put you in touch with this person? And Lily Gladstone said yes. And something so something that Lily Gladstone said, which I just think is really beautiful and speaks to why this film is the antidote to Killers of the Flower Moon. So she said, quote, Marissa wasn't the first filmmaker who approached me after certain women who had an idea for a project kind of like this which I tend to be a little bit guarded about because there's a lot of that sort of real lens look into reservation life that produces films that are, in my opinion, and in a lot of people's opinions, incredibly exploitative Mm. and that come in with an agenda. I was just not wanting to contribute to that because it felt like certain women was such a great opportunity for representation in film, having an indigenous character just existing. I fucking love Lily Gladstone (laughs) so much. And I think that what she said there is really powerful I love that she said that and that's she wasn't afraid to say that and express that. While I didn't love Killers of the Flower Moon, if she is nominated and wins an Oscar, I think she deserves all the awards because I really just love her as as a performer, but also she just seems like a fucking killer person. And this, yeah, it seems like Killers of the Flower Moon doesn't work for me in like the oeuvre of other films that she's made where she is clearly trying to do something different but I think she's fantastic in it mm-hmm. um but she talked a lot in the in this interview about like just wanting a character who's just there and we're just like witnessing their life and we're not trying to say anything particular about it and um Marissa Meltz and Lily Gladstone both talk about how like the key of this film was about grief Mm-hmm. and that that's like the universal aspect of the film. And so that through these, both these real life stories, like these people we're meeting along the way, like like people who work at diners and gas stations and dance halls and stuff like that through their stories, but then like they're real genuine stories, but then also this um, universal but fictional story that Lily Gladstone's character is on, we get this universal exploration of, connection and loss Mm -hmm. um and (laughs) i have a couple beautiful but also funny things so lily gladstone said quote when an early at an early screener a guy asked why is she going on a road trip i lost my grandma and it didn't make me want to go on a big road trip and then lily gladstone's response to that was i think that says a little bit more about your relationship with your grandma than it does about our film (laughs) (laughs) fuck yeah (laughs) but then she also said this is really beautiful Um, so she was talking about how seeing this with people and and then being really moved by it, especially she said people who had lost parents, grandparents, and like people that were real important figures in their life. She said, quote, that's one thing that I actually really love about the film, that it doesn't surprise me. It just delights me that it moves people who have touched the fire of that kind of loss, that it's moving and meaningful to them without manipulating or prying into their trauma too much. 
It's rare when a film doesn't sensationalize anything. It just allows the space to kind of collectively breathe and feel uplifted. Mm. They knew exactly what kind of movie they were making. Oh, yeah. And it won't be for everyone. Not in a way that Dr. Caligari is not for everyone. (laughs) In a different way. That's so beautiful. And I just feel like the way that this movie came together, like the collaboration efforts in creating the story and crafting the story and giving the people the latitude, like um, Marissa, Marissa Maltz giving the people the latitude to be able to do that, to enhance the story and add so much depth without having to necessarily be expository about it in any way. Like I feel... Like in Lily Gladstone's case, she's able to convey so much with just her face. I mean, the final shot of the film is just her face, and I found it so powerful. And it and like the ending itself, just it's sticking with me because it's just it's so beautiful. And all of the little stories and vignettes throughout the film all culminate into this. I also just love like a road trip movie, and the fact that it is anchored with Lily Gladstone and she's the touch point through all of this. It's also beautiful. Um, So so Roger Ebert.com gave it a 4.5 out of five Mm. and the reviewer, uh, Sheila O'Malley, she said this about the way that it's shot, and I, I really agree. So she said, quote, Andrew Hedgick's cinematography is awash in colors and sensitive to the nuances of light, cold or deep, harsh or soft. Lens flares are almost a cliche, but not how they're used here. Light melts or refracts. Those dark blues and floating neon signs, the O of motel reflected in the windshield, the monochromatic snowy landscape and the deep colors of a windy twilight in the middle of nowhere. All this gives the unknown country an amazing tactile quality. You don't watch the movie, you experience it through your senses. Mm -hmm. And it's, it does such a, they do such a great job just through like visuals of guiding you through this journey. Like even as, uh, as Tana moves from very barren cold landscapes into the warmth of Texas. You feel that transition as a viewer and it's, it's so expertly crafted. It works so well for me and there's emotional beats in here. I got welly multiple times. Me too. Specifically a part that will stick with me is when Tana connects with grandpa August. That's a really beautiful story too, because, um, they were struggling to find like an actor to play that role. Like it's, some of these people are just real people. And mm-hmm. some of these people, like the Shangros, are real people fictionalizing their stories. Um, and then there's just fictional characters. Mm-hmm. And they wanted the grandpa character to be an actor. Um, and Lily Gladstone was the one who she had worked with um, Richard Ray Whitman on a different film. And she said, I think he's exactly what we're working looking for in this. So just so much collaboration in this, but but I agree that was a beautiful scene, especially because there's a line early in the film when Tana reconnects with um, family that she hasn't seen in a really long time, where an older family member says, "Like the land will heal you, mm-hmm. like the land will the land will bring home back to you," and it seems like, and particularly she seems like resistant to go back to the reservation. And that's where she connects with her grandpa or like, I don't know that he's her grandpa. He's her uh, grandma who she's lost br- little brother. Mm-hmm. Um, and their conversation is just so beautiful. Yeah. Even just like 
<laughs> I get emotional thinking about just when he sees her and she's just like, do you remember me? Or like, do you know who I am? And he's just like that moment of like, you think that he's trying to figure out who she is and his connection to her. But I think that he's just feeling a lot of mm-hmm. emotions at just seeing her again. Mm-hmm. And she is too. And that's because this film is like blending documentary and reality. Those mo- moments just feel so hyper real, even yeah. though it it's too, those are, <laughs> they, they are not biologically related. Mm-hmm. Um, these are just two actors doing a phenomenal job. I, I thought it was like a, an incredibly beautiful, quiet, poetic, reflective film and I just great like, one to get a free trial of movie and watch. Absolutely. And and like dealing in the complexities of just like being a human, both the good and like there's some actual like really like tension laden moments in this too, of just like the experience of being a woman and it's and just being around men and being in different community communities, but also the opposite of that of like finding strangers and then connecting with them. Just yeah, some of the scenes in Texas are just so lively and yeah, I, I think this film just does such a good job of like, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Like there's connection. There's, there's fleeting mm-hmm. connection with strangers. There's deep connection with strangers. There's fleeting connection with home and family and land and there's deep connections with home and family and land and and we move through those things as we figure out our own journey and who we are and there's no right or wrong and there's no like the universality is the experience of connection in its many different forms and loss in its many different forms and this film grounds both loss and connection in place and people yeah and that the way that we choose to approach it deal with it can be so complex and can be so personal. And I feel like that's so beautiful. Like there's no right way to grieve. There's no wrong way to grieve. And that's kind of the beauty of it all. (laughs) It's also the second movie this week with like a reveal of opening a box or suitcase that belonged to somebody who has been lost and me being incredibly moved by what's inside of it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what a weird connection. Anyway, I, I yeah. really like this movie and I think that uh, people should, should watch it. I 100% agree. How did it make you feel? It made me feel achingly reflective. Mm. How did it make you feel? Taken by its beauty and humanity. Well, that's all the movies this week. Let's talk about dads. Dads of the week. There's a few choices for these, but I chose for my bad dad nominee, Stephen Murphy from Killing of a Sacred Deer. I also chose Stephen. Um, tell me why. I mean, he's just, like I mentioned, very cold and very distant and also just like weird. He's a weird person and he's tough to read. And because of that, he comes across as very impatient and He's also non-communicative in a lot of ways and very guarded. It's such a, that'd be such a tough person to connect with and to feel held by and to feel protected by and to feel like they're on your side. I don't, I don't want that. Uh, (laughs) I don't like. (laughs) Agreed. Yeah. I said, um, even before things get highly icky and disturbing, He's so disconnected from his family. Mm-hmm. 
And when you think about this film starts like in the midst of everything already happening. But when I think about the character of Martin, I think that Stephen has been incredibly inappropriate with him. Like he starts a relationship with this boy who's lost his father, who's looking for connection. And he starts this relationship with him out of guilt and then, and then starts to pull away from the relationship without ever really communicating. If I was Martin, I'd be like he is too. Um, And then the film both in his time with Martin, but also his time with his children and his wife, he's constantly not talking about what's going on and yet demands that he be in control. Yeah. And that everybody supersede to him. It's that, it's that thing that I find endlessly frustrating of just, I'm going to keep everything inside and then get angry when you don't understand or want to follow what I do because I haven't communicated that, but you should already know that. And then when he does communicate, like it's awful. Like in the scene where he tells his son to get a haircut, it's so rude. Oh yeah. Like he's just, yeah, he's, he's a totally bad dad. And honestly, if I was Martin, I'd do the same thing. <laughs> yeah. I I'd teach this guy that he's not as in control as he thinks he is. And he doesn't deserve to have the control. Um, he's bad. Really bad. So Stephen Murphy, don't, don't be, be our dad. dad. Your rad dad. I picked Jane <laughs> for <laughs> happiest season. Oh my I God. I know we had some options, Amazing. but I just love her. Yeah. I just think, I, I'm assuming you didn't pick her. I didn't. Okay. So I'm going to talk about her. She is so fiercely herself and yet still loves her family. But I think the thing that makes her like the raddest dad is like how she advocates for herself and champions others. And she doesn't um, sacrifice either one. She doesn't sacrifice herself for others and neither does she sacrifice others for herself. And even when her family is being doinky doinks, she's just like, well, I'm going to be me and you do you and I will do little things to try and make you feel loved. And when things come to a head, she speaks out for herself and what she deserves. Mm-hmm. And I love her. Yeah, I, I love her as well. Not too far from Jane, I picked John, Dan Levy from Happiest oh, Season. Oh, we both did Happiest Season. Michelle, Paul Giamatti is a rad dad. <laughs> he for sure is. We just watched it in the same week with some other <laughs> rad dads. Yes. I mean, John makes it very clear that he's there for his people. And he's protective. He's willing to help. I mean, he's also hilarious. Um, he just has a lot of kindness and a lot of love. Great with the speech. Yeah, I mean, that speech definitely shows like his empathy for Harper, even while he's there to protect Abby. Mm-hmm. Like he doesn't, in his protection of Abby, he doesn't throw other people under the bus. Mm-hmm. Um, they're both good. I don't know what to say. Yeah. It's going to get even more complicated when we get to, yep. to daddies. <laughs> yep. Um, let's let's do Jane. Okay. Because I really like that. And I already alluded to Jane just being the MVP. So it only seems right to make Jane the rad dad. Perfect. Jane, be our, be our dad. dad. I mean, Jesus Christ. The daddy is just the cast of Happiest Season. <laughs> I think that's probably what we should do. I put case to, but it's literally everybody. Yeah. Like it is Dan Levy. Including Victor Gerber and Mary Steenberg. Yeah. Like everybody is a total babe in this. Yeah. I'll just grab the image from the poster. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, Clea Duvall too, to be honest. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, it's the cast and crew of Happiest Season. Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. All right. So has a Babelier movie ever existed? So the cast of Happiest Season. Wheat wood. <laughs> okay. Rad wreck of the week. We're heading into holiday time. And rad wreck is to be kind and thoughtful during the holidays. Not only to each other, but also to yourself. If you have boundaries or if there are certain things that you need or want uh, over this time when you're getting together with family or you're getting together with loved ones, make sure that you're looking after yourself and you're looking after each other. Whether you celebrate or not, we hope that you have a really safe and enjoyable holiday and that everybody can continue to spread that joy and spread kindness during this time of year when there's a lot of shit going on in the world. Be excellent to each other. To quote Bill and Ted. But we hope that you have a really great holidays from both of us here at Bad Dad, Rad Dad. Thank you so much for listening. We drop a new episode every Thursday. Until then, you can follow us and slide into our DMs on Instagram at baddad.raddad. You can get a sneak peek of what we've been watching on our individual letterboxed accounts. Our usernames are in the show notes. We would absolutely love you forever if you could share us with the rad people in your life and drop us a, uh, I was going to say a Christmas rating. <laughs> Please do drop us a Christmas rating. Uh, that would be a lovely gift. Christmas rating review or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. And that's going to do it for these Christmas cuties this week. So until next time. I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot. And my dad's a deadbeat. But remember. Not all dads have to be bad. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.